The reason I coach is actually because of my high school coach. It was sort of radical at the time because his, his really his intent was to build this tennis program that served kids in the community I lived in. And so, you know, a lot of them were black, Latino kids. One of the evenings we're getting ready to leave and I said, coach, you would keep this up. You're going to win coach of the year again. And he says, Ronnie, Ronnie, you know what I want more than anything for these courts to be named after me. And me, being the future politician I thought I was going to be in those days, I'm like, I'm going to be mayor and I'm going to name the courts after coach. It's going to be great. Well, I never became mayor of my hometown. And I did get the courts named after him while he was still alive, <laughs> four years after that conversation. Human, the designer. Hello, and welcome to the podcast Human, the designer a show where we explore the human behind the professional, what makes them passionate about the work and what drives them to become better. With you is your host, Angelos. And I am your other host, Eve. And today we will be welcoming our second guest on the show, and we are very excited. He leads impactful initiatives at the intersection of technology, service design, and public policy. He spent his past decade working in government and currently working on a book about consequence design. People, please give a warm welcome to Ram Bronson. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so good to be here. The audience is very finished, so like, you know, no one claps, but... Uh, Nobody claps, right, of course. Yeah. This is, I'm super, you know, I'm super comfortable with this. This is, this is, <laughs> I think better yeah. is we were not thinking at a pub, but I'll take this. This is fine <laughs> for now. Right. <laughs> hey, welcome, Ron. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, we would like to do a special shout out, and that is to Andrew, a first ever patron. If you want to join Andrew, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash jointfrontiers and become a patron for four euros. You will get early access to articles and podcast episodes, access to our Slack community, your name and title at the website and shout out in a future podcast episode, a chance to shape up our community and exclusive behind the scenes content. What we want to do here, this podcast, is uh, we want to get to know you a little bit. So uh, our very first question getting into this is, uh, you know, what is your origin story? So how did you trace your uh, creativity from from your child uh, years to to now? Yeah, um, so I, I don't know. I, I feel like I was always creating things as a kid. Um like countries, sports, didn't matter. I was always inventing things, making things up. Uh, definitely very creative as a kid. I don't know that that mapped to design necessarily to me. Um, I, I, but I did start pretty early using the web to, to connect to people. And so I was sort of like, it was a good pathway to making, making things. And so, you know, the first thing I ever built online was a, this is, this is nerdy, mm -hmm. a uh, online uh, simulation. It was like a, like a community for people. We would simulate like we were legislators, oh, wow. like parliament, but in Amer America and Congress. And so it was like an online government simulation. Okay. And uh, I was 15. <laughs> I was 15 years old. And there were, I think our peak, there were hundreds of us. And, um, and it started off where we'd meet live online once a week, but that got unwieldy. So we just started doing it asynchronously via forums. And, uh, and this, this, this model still exists to this day, but we started the first ones in like the mid nineties. And so this is, this is how I, this is how I got my start on the web was doing this, the, doing this super um, real cool thing to do when you're in high school. 
Uh, <laughs> so when when others were trying to get into design, you were trying to get into design leadership right off the bat. Didn't know I was doing that. But that's what I was doing, and yeah, <laughs> it was it was really fun. It was a really fun couple of years of doing those kinds of things. Do other yeah. stuff too, but that's that's how it started. Yeah, it reminds me of my times uh, trying model UN stuff at school, but this is digitalized on on the web. So wow, right, <laughs> right, right. It's exactly what it was. So, Ron, what about during your school time or uh, college slash university? Like, um, have you taken any um, artsy classes, uh, you know, on the more creative side? Or have you pursued any uh, hobbies that, that were creative? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. I, uh, I, uh, it, this, this is a story, I promise. I am... Um, actually uh, majored in economics. I actually served in the Air Force first. So I was in the military before I went to, went to university. So I was in the military first, and then I went to university. So I was in my 20s when I went to university. Um, I played college and university. And then, um, and yeah, I was in economics, studied economics. I never thought I would end up doing this stuff for a living. It was never my plan. I'm glad I'm doing it, but it wasn't, I didn't set out to do it. Mm. Uh, I, did do, I did do a thing though, was, um, in my mid 20s, I had the opportunity, mostly by accident, to start a shoe brand. <laughs> wow. Oh. And so that's that's probably where it pivoted, where I was like, oh, design. Um, and that whole story is like, it's, it's superfluous. But but I, it, anyway, the point of the story is I ended up doing that. And and I, well, yeah, two things happened. I did that. And it, in terms of design, I invented a sport um, in 2004. And, and so that, that sort of weirdly started creating, again, where I was building things online, right? I'm just building. So the whole time I'm in school, I'd be taking econ classes and studying philosophy and reading all these things and get really interested in policy. But when I'd go home at night, I'd get on the web and start, I'd build sites for things. I taught myself, you know, mm-hmm. over the years, I mean, I'm, I'm learning HTML and CSS as a high school kid. I get to college after a couple of years in the military and I'm like, what, what new things are out here now? Oh, there are content management systems. Yeah. Oh, what's, what's Photoshop work like? You know, I used to use paint shop. Now I'm using Photoshop. So like learning the tools and it was just all a hobby. It was just me doing this on my own. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. In a way you were more um, entrepreneurial perhaps and uh, curious anyway, which I guess it's uh, it's a bit like um, part of creativity, if not creativity anyway, kind of like, you know, being curious about things and just exploring and uh, questioning, getting your hands dirty. Yeah. Yeah. Questioning right. and uh, experimenting with things. And really learning maybe the whole, the whole picture of how things are working in, in one sense, right? It's why, it's why I'm so passionate about service design and trying to broaden the, I mean, you, Europeans get it. You all that Europe understands service design so much more maturely than in the U.S. Um, and, and I mean, obviously there, I'm sure there are flaws and things are like, oh, they could be better, but mm-hmm. here it's so not mature. We don't, you know, service design here is really focused on like, well, post-it notes and profit driven things. It's not mm-hmm. thinking about like, it's not holistic. It's not, it's not, it's not altruistic. It's not thinking about actual people is in my opinion. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think having that policy background, having that, that sort of ones and O's background, thinking about your things in this really analog way, yeah. bringing that to my design practice as I've gotten you know, in more into things that maybe would not have been as present for me had I come in a, at this in a different way. For me, maybe if I come at it a different way. So you mentioned that your studies were in economics and I was wondering uh, what kind of learnings you were able to transfer from there to your career as a designer once you kind of like started to pursue that? So it's everything. Uh, 
so much of my understanding about the way the world works and policy. Part of the reason that consequence design in my mind, or why I call it that, and how it's sort of the ideation of that to me was driven out of so much of what we do as designers, so much of the work that we do as designers often feels to me isolated. Like people are thinking about it, oh, my users, my products, my audience. And sort of the one beat of that is, is there's this, this assumption that uh, everyone going through the door, everyone downloading my apps going to experience this the same way. We know that's not true in our hearts, yeah. but we design it in this very sort of, or we create four pathways. Well, here are the personas, here are the folks who are doing this. These are the only ways folks are going to engage with this. And everyone else is an edge case. Yeah. And it's like, no, everyone, you're in the edge case. <laughs> and so, you know, having the econ background, really understanding, like, not that I think economics is even particularly, like, I have, that's a separate podcast, but I have feelings about economics, like lots of feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But but I think the underpinnings of understanding how folks frame things, the frame, economics is all framing, right? It's all framing, right? That's why you have different kinds of economic, ec- economists. You have, you know, you have Marxist economists, you have, you know, yeah. conservative economists. Mm-hmm. It's all framing. It's all about how am I interpreting this literature? How am I interpreting this information to, to impose this worldview on human interactions, human uh, trades and so forth? Mm-hmm. I think that that's the design in a similar way. Um, how am I framing this tool that I'm building? What value is it providing? You know, the, you know, we say, oh, we're all here to, we're all here to, to make the world better. Yeah, okay. I don't know that your mm-hmm. FacePlace app is doing that, Bob. <laughs> right. Right. And so, so for me, that it's, it's, it took me, it took me a while to get here, but I think that you know, it's really that, that, that passion for wanting to fix things. You said go back to earlier. I'm going to say this. You asked me about like what made me. What made me want to get into policy was growing up in a place that I saw change and not for the mm. better, a community that didn't change for the better and wondering, well, if you have the power, if you're the mayor, or if you're a congressman, or if you're a local assemblyman or something, and you have this power and all I see is stuff getting worse, but you seem to be doing all right. Like you're eating great. You don't seem stressed out about stuff not getting good or schools not being as good as they could be. And a lot of this is American mm. funding schemes for your European audience is like, gosh, Ron lives in a third world country. Well, I kind of do. Uh, like, like, I mean, sort of. Like, America is definitely like, it's a tale of like, you know, first world and failed state all at once. Mm-hmm. And so that, that fervor made me, made me want to get into policy with the, with the naive assumption that I could make it better. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, if I get into this, they, they just don't understand it and I'll help them. No, it turns out this is, this is designed this way. It's made this way on purpose. Exactly. And so that informs my design practice, that it's like to try to help very naive, but also sometimes well-intentioned designers, developers, product folks who just think that all they need to do is appify something or build a site that's going to make it better. And it's like, no, buddy, this is, this is embedded in the system and you can't graft a UI layer onto toxicity. Exactly. Because <laughs> all you have is toxic top app, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's also the same thing with uh, what we're uh, talking when, uh, when we are talking about holistic design in general, it's like you cannot change things even in an organization with just doing the UI part. Like you have to do more than that. Like UI is, uh, I have a controversial view that I say like UI is not even value yeah. for design in general. It's just, it's just an, an output. 
not even an outcome. It's just an output. It's it's something tangible. It's good. Right. It shows something to people, but it's nothing more than that. Hundred percent. I agree with that. I agree with that, Lawrence. Um, I want to to ask a little bit. Like, has this view, you know, getting into the the world of design with this mindset and then seeing the reality uh, while trying to change things, has, has it changed your uh, attitude towards things? Like, have you become more of a, um, how to say that? Have you become more uh, complacent or more the opposite? What is the opposite? I don't know the word. I'm pretty, I, I wouldn't say that I'm cynical. I mean, I am, but, <laughs> but I try not to be. Um, I think having, having the lens of, of seeing it as it is, I think there's still, I'm hopeful mm -hmm. that, it, that it's fixed, that things are fixable. But I don't think it's the example I'll give is down this down the street for me. There's a house that was uh, that was full of toxic stuff inside of it, so they couldn't just implode the house. They'd take it apart piece by piece. Yeah, I see this that way. I see my I see the, I see I view design in that same lens of like yeah. let's take this apart piece by piece, and then if we want to build something new in this spot, fantastic. Or we'll just put a park there. I'm good with that too. <laughs> but it's it's interesting how you said that when when you started looking into economics and and seeing how, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to teach people how to do this the right way. And then now years later, you're in the middle of everything. And it's just like, oh my God, this is so much more complicated than I thought in, in the first place. Um, like you said, it's that building down the street that's full of toxic materials. You can't just do a simple change. You have to really go piece by piece, uh, maybe even rebuild the whole architecture uh, ground up. If you could then uh, look at that and and because you're you're also into teaching people uh, things and and you have your own opinion about stuff and your own attitude how would you what kind of uh, direction would you want to see in others uh, looking at this this kind of landscape of, of, of problems in a way I think it extends to me as much as anybody else I think that yeah. you have to you have to escape your own your own lens of how you how how problems are framed yeah. um like so much of how we we build solutions or we you know we actually intact we solutionize or we, we we try to solve problems or approach problems is based on is framed based on who our friends are who we know yeah. our own stressors or, or or issues and i think that we need to get outside of that i think that it's important for us to to I always say go down the street because in some in America, especially in some neighborhoods, you go down the street, it's a dramatically different, you know, dramatically like in New York, you go down the street, it's a dramatically different experience on one side of the street than if you go 10 blocks down the street. And I feel like more people need to do that or get in your car and drive to the next town over and ask them what their problem yeah. and don't just ask them what their problems are because they may not tell you they don't know who you are. Instead, experience that, live it, see it. <clears throat> one of the, um, one example of this is going to, you know, different stores, so different brand name stores in different parts of towns. And some towns you walk in the store, you go in, they say hello to you, you buy the thing, they say have a good day and you leave. In some parts of the town, same chain, but different part of town, you go in, they check your bags when you go in, mm -hmm. you go into the store, they follow you around the store, you leave the store, they don't say goodbye. And when you leave the store, you check your bag again, same chain, same brand different experience, but they're not accounting for that in corporate, right? No one's accounting for that. No one's make, no one, there are no metrics for that. They just think that's Tuesday. Maybe they adapted that at the local level, but we as designers do similar things, like, and we don't, we did, does not always metabolize. So I think it's super, super important for us to, to, to build frameworks 
yeah. to build, you know, to, to build frameworks for us to be able to think, to, be, to help people be able to think through those kinds of things uh, easier. Cause it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. What was your first job in design? Uh, so my first job in design was hired as a designer. I managed a call, I managed a university website um, in my mid twenties. Um, uh, but like the first like, time someone paid me to, to build a site was, um, was for a, for a store that sold cowboy hats and boots, um, which I felt really fancy about. It was really cool. It was actually a really cool glimpse of like a local store in the place I was living at the time needed someone to manage their website. And they let me do that remotely even at the time. Wow. Um, it's like early, it was like early 2000s, a big deal. They like paid me, let me do this remotely. And they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, so that was the first time that someone paid me to build a site. But after that, I started working on university sites and spent about a good number of years just doing that, going to different universities as a staff member, working in-house and working on, you know, redesigning the site, you know, migrating CMSs, rewriting lots of content, dealing with stakeholders, developing training. So the whole very, you know, very, uh, very unicorny kind of work, really. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't explicitly designed. Um, I didn't have an explicitly yeah. design role till much later in my career. I was sort of doing a lot of that sort of uh, one-stop shop UX for a long time, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Has uh, working with universities uh, helped you in any way to later in your career, for example, to uh, teach people more about design? Like, did, did it have an impact on, on that level or, or not? Your, your exposure to universities and, and how they work? It's hard not to, but universities, and especially here, are so bureaucratic hmm. that what it's helped with is helped me in hmm. government is what it helped with because, because the parallels aren't that different. Um, I mean, it's just yeah. the scale in government is bigger, but the parallels otherwise are pretty much, you know, pretty similar in terms of the entrenched bureaucracy and the slowness and yeah. who gets to make decisions. Um, mm -hmm. So it taught me all of that. Uh, as far as the teaching piece, I, I, I certainly think it, it must have helped somewhat, but Honestly, I think it's, you know, you all are in conferences. I think the conference circuit actually probably helped me more with, with the teaching piece because mm. you get to see like folks who are really good at communicating ideas and topics and in a way that's at, in a way that someone comes to my event, they come to my talk and they leave the room and they can do that. They can go home and try the thing. Like that was a yeah. cool, it took me a while to get to that point, but I feel like, and I don't know that I'm all the way there, but it's cool to get to that mindset instead of just being like, I know things and I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, you've been doing quite a few different things, uh, a lot of different paths. And um, I was seeing that you also, uh, at least I've, I've been spying on your LinkedIn a bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I saw that you've been uh, not just co-founder, so the entrepreneurial spirit uh, that you have, but also brand director, which has a lot to do with, you know, how, how a company uh, shows themselves, how they portray themselves. Uh, not just from a visual perspective, but also just, you know, what is, what is it that someone stands for in a way? So I, I was just wondering how, how those experiences went and, and uh, yeah, how did that go? How did you learn about it? How did you experience it? Um, what, what did you take away from that kind of thing? And uh, I'm guessing you're still in your own way using those skills all the time right absolutely that was a startup that was the shoe brand startup oh, right. that i co-found i co-founded that i just didn't put that in linkedin because i feel like it's weird when somebody's like co-founder co-founder co-founded everything in their linkedin i'm like really i mean all right <laughs> uh and so uh i say that i didn't need to go to business school because i did that experience yeah um because it was like very much like getting an mba um because mm. it did because it didn't work 
it was too early. Uh, we were trying to sell shoes online before Zappos, right? Like it was early. It was just too soon. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so, but what was cool about that experience was just getting to understand a sector that I didn't know super well. How people are pretty nice to a, a, to a startup, all things being equal. Just to understand how to build a brand that's undercapitalized, right? Um, how to develop that. And what you just said, I think, was the piece that I've taken with me, which is the how to live, how to communicate your values and articulate those values mm-hmm. through the through, through action, not just through words, right? It's one thing to yeah. say, we care. It's another thing to show that through the work that you produce, through the, through the intentional choices that you make with where you source from or how you design things or how you create partnerships or so forth. And so, so all of that. And so in terms of like, again, going back to the content piece, so much of how I advise people on, on messaging this stuff is in be- is is very much a very much a one to one to that old experience of yeah. look you can't just say this and then not do it if if you're going to say that's what you are you have to actually do that and mm-hmm. so and document that for them in a way that they can just you know mirror that into whatever they're trying to create and so yeah so those experiences are with me all the time um, very formative. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering about the, uh, so you are very much into tennis and you, you teach tennis, I'm guessing. You're yeah, a tennis yeah. coach. Yeah. And at some point you volunteered as a tennis director and you've been like into, well, organizing things for camps and stuff like that. Yeah. In those settings as uh, a coach, is that more of an escape from, from your, from your uh, let's say from your work life? Uh, or do you do you also find yourself bringing in certain values there that that you really care about as well in, in your work? So I still do it, um, and um, so actually right now I coach a high school team here in in, in, in Portland where I live. Yeah. Um, done that for the last three years. Um, it's it's well, so actually since this is human, the designer, um, the reason I the reason I coach is actually because of my high school coach. So I had a high school coach who passed away a couple of years ago, but he lived to be ninety six. Okay. And he was coaching us once as 80s. And so, yeah, I'll tell the story. This is useful. So Mr. Van Blake, he said he passed away. He's great. And so he, in his 70s, he started, he picked up tennis in his 50s and, um, and retired from teaching and then built this tennis program in my hometown. And he was trying, it was sort of radical at the time because his, his really his intent was to build this tennis program that served kids in the community I lived in. And so, you know, a lot of them, you know, were, were black kids and, and, you know, were Latino kids or... Um, we had a pretty diverse team for my own town, but my town's predominantly, predominantly black town. Um, but over 20 years, he turned this program into like a sort of a side hobby into a really successful, very, you know, consistent contender every year kind of program. Um, point of the story is that it was really cool to, to watch him and just to like, and I didn't know I was learning from him, right. I'm just sort of doing, experiencing this, but you just pick up things from someone in terms of how they carry themselves and how they, how they communicate and, their view on the world and the things they've seen. And, and so one of the things he said, my senior year of high school, 17 years old, and was the best season we had had almost ever um, in school history. We won our, you know, won our league. It was a very successful year. I said to coach, I said, we were one of the evenings, we're getting ready to leave. And I said, coach, you know, you would keep this up. You're going to win coach of the year again. And he says, Ronnie, to this day, no one, no one calls me Ronnie, but him. He was the only person in the whole world ever called me that. He says, Ronnie, you know what I want more than anything? I said, no. He says, for these courts to be named after me. 
while I'm still alive and coaching. Everything else, something like that, ah, you could die. So his exact words. And I said, all right, coach. And me, being the future politician I thought I was going to be in those days, I'm like, I'm going to be mayor and I'm going to name the courts after coach. It's going to be great. Well, I never became mayor of my hometown. And I did get the course named after him while he was still alive. <laughs> Four years after that conversation, um, I wrote a few letters and they, the school board made it happen. Um, I think they would have done it anyway, but, but we, made it, we, we made it happen before, while he was still alive and while I was still coaching. And so if you ask me, what's well, the most proud thing you've ever done? That. That's the thing. And I don't like, there's like no article that says Ron Bronson did this. It's not like if you take my word for it or you don't. But the point is, is like, that's why I, so, so why I always wanted the coach was just what he was able to give to kids and, and to show and expose us to things. And, you know, and I had parents, it wasn't like he was, I it was like a father figure or anything. It wasn't that at all. It was just that, that selflessness of he made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for us before matches. We were, we were high school, see, we we're high school kids. And, and wow. you say, well, that was nice of him to do that. Whatever. If he didn't make sandwiches, the kids would get upset. Like, coach, where are the sandwiches today? Ah, <laughs> oh, sorry, I was running late. Didn't get a chance to do it. I mean, so the level of care that you talk about, talk about design, the level of care and intentionality and mm. selflessness and devotion that goes into, into your craft, into your work certainly maps to me in terms of tennis. And, and, mm. and so, and it is, it's different than the everyday work. It's not the same as staring at a screen. So I really like having something where I don't stare at a screen all day. I think that uh, with, perhaps without him ever knowing about it, he was practicing servant leadership. 100%, 100%. Like he is a, he's a picture of servant leadership to me. Absolutely. Didn't think of that, but 100%. So he, he's really... Uh... Uh, an important person in your life oh without, without without a doubt one of you know outside of my outside of my family certainly yeah. one of the top top five without without a doubt it's nice nice hearing about this kind of uh, personal story uh with with a lot of you know warm values to it and and something that drives you as a person probably to this day as well he used to buy this these green books that i for for keeping tennis scores they're like ancient these books in the 60s you can still buy them though mm -hmm. And so I buy one every year when I coach and keep my scores in it because he carried one. <laughs> so it's, that's the level of homage that no one knows the homage, but me, but, but it's still, it's one sitting, sitting right there on my table. Yeah. Ron, I, I have to ask, we have to ask since we are a Finnish podcast here. Of course. Yep. How the hell did you... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, if they don't bring this up, this is such a wasted opportunity. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to ask this. Everyone else will know the context in a little bit, but um, cool. Uh, how the hell did you end up getting involved with Pesa Palo? And and first of all, what the hell is Pesa Palo for those who don't know it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> no need. Um, so like, Fish is it, Pesa Palo is um roughly finished baseball. Um, started in the started over over a 20 year period in the 19 from the like early 1900s based on a local Finnish game into around the 1920s but became what it is now. Um, I mean, it, what I always say to Americans is, I'm like, it's it's like our baseball. There's a bat, there's a ball, there are four bases. You have a glove. It is a field. After that, everything gets a little weird. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned earlier, I did invent a sport in 2004 um, called tennis polo. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the searching of that, in terms of design and everything else, one of the things that we said, so we never set, this, set out to create that. That's mostly tennis polo got invented like baseball, basketball did rather, where um, you have some kids 
the weather was bad and you need to find something for them to do. And we kept trying, we, we, we did a lot of iterative design as kids, myself with these kids of like, yeah. we were, the courts were, I'm going to, this is a, this is a circuitous story, but it'll be, it'll, be, it'll pay off in the end. Um, basically it rained too much that summer. Um, the courts would get really slippery so we couldn't play on them. We would go inside the field house indoors and play, but it was boring because it was like one court, one net. And I had been there at this camp before. So the kids, we all knew each other. And so it was just kind of like, oh, this isn't fun. Let's find something else to do with our tennis time. And so we started using the tennis racket and tennis ball to iterate. So we started playing volleyball with it. That wasn't fun. <laughs> we tried basketball with it. That wasn't really fun either. And so one day, one of the kids says, let's go to the soccer field and try it there. And we did. And that's how it got invented. And it became like the most popular thing at camp that summer. It's like 90 degrees outside. And the kids wanted to play soccer. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we did this. This is, yeah. So in, we changed the name of tennis polo because people didn't, they heard talker, they heard soccer, you know. In any case, in writing the actual rules for the game after that summer was over, because people have wanted to know what the rules were, um, I started discovering other sports. So I found Pace Apollo in like 2005. I'm like, wait, they play baseball in Finland? Wait, what is this? And then I forgot about it for about five years. Um, and then living in a different part of America at the time was kind of, I had, so I had a lot of time on my hands. I was a little bored. Um, and as a joke, almost like, a, like an American will pick up a European soccer team, like a, you know, EPL team or something, or a Bundesliga team. I decided to adopt a Finnish baseball team in that same vein, mostly for, as a joke. I'm like, Oh, this will be funny. And like, Oh, it's your favorite soccer team. Well, I don't have one, but you know, my favorite Finnish baseball team is Vimpoli Veto, <laughs> you know? And so, so in 2011, I decide this is what I'm going to do. And so for a couple of years, back then, you couldn't watch the games online. They would have recordings on Vimeo that would be like days late. Like it was really slow. Um, and so you, I didn't talk to anyone about it really at all. And then over the years, thanks to Twitter and, and you know, kind of as a party trick, I would talk to people about it. And so it wasn't until 20, I think 2016 or so that a reporter, for a reporter for, um, for HS, um, no, actually for a different paper, found my Twitter or an article I wrote about it and said, what in the world? Basically said what you just said. What are you, what? Why? Huh? Exactly. Why? Exactly. And so he interviewed, interviewed me. So I, there was a print article about me in 2016 in a, in a news, all in Finnish newspaper about me, this American, crazy American who got into Pace Apollo. And that's when it all started. That's when it really, like, that's when it began. Mm -hmm. I ended up at the Finnish embassy in New York that summer, that later that year. And I got to know a lot of like, you know, like Finns in the Finnish baseball game, including the greatest pitcher of all time. Like, I mean, I got to know like my favorite players. I got to know them. It was like ridiculous. Oh, wow. And so ever since then, I've sort of become this, I'm not the only American who's into this, but I'm certainly like, I feel like an ambassador of sorts to the Finnish game and, and you know, sort of yeah. talking about how great it is because it's something that it's really near to me. My favorite team plays four hours from four and a half hours from Helsinki and Vimpoli. And so I've been there. You know, so funny when I talked to, actually, I was really excited to get to know you, you know, online, Angelus, and, and become part of this, partially just because I feel like for as much as I, you know, connected to Finland and I, you know, like the Finnish embassy follows me on Twitter. Like, I mean, like for how connected I am to Finland, like all my Finnish relationships are all born out of face of have nothing to do with the actual thing I do for a living. And I've got a barely, you know, I'm, fairly decent footprint in this tech thing but like none of it was in finland at all and so it's like this is kind of a kind of a funny thing how this works out but yeah yeah by the way um finland is the number one country in pesapalo like they, they're always the winners well they're the only country because no one else plays it so you know it was born in finland it's the game that was made in finland he invented it there 
And so, yeah, nobody is not anywhere else that's pl- that plays Pace to Follow. Um, pretty much just Finnish expats, except, fun fact, for uh, Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. So as it turns out, so as it turns out a few years ago, that we sent a coach, a, co- a person I just talked to, uh, they sent a, a coach, some coaches there to Bangladesh. There's some funding they got from the country because they were thinking, well, we haven't been good at anything in other sports and World Cups, but there's a Pace Apollo World Cup. And if we put a team together and we get good at it, maybe we can win a medal at that World Cup because they're not a lot of countries playing it. And so it's taken off there and there's a cricket culture there. So they've got a bat and ball culture already. And so yeah. they, they, they're a game. They stage their own events. I've seen some of the games online. I'm mystified by it happening. But there are like they have kids doing it. It's really great. So I, I don't think it'll be long before we see a Bangladeshi young, uh, you know, boy or girl coming to Finland to play in uh, the Super Paces, which is the major league of Finnish baseball. Um, but yeah, and for all the people listening at home who want side conversations about Finnish baseball in English, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron, why why haven't you? Um made your own team yet in the u.s oh oh well i'm a tennis coach i'm not a baseball coach <laughs> um i'm a fan i'm a fan of the game i'm a fan of the game i don't mm-hmm. know also you know america there's more competition for sports there's so many sports here. yeah there's so much going on and also the other thing because paces is 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 basically is um is you know is really indigenous to finland the equipment is hard to get anywhere other than in finland and it's really expensive yeah. stuff so It's actually a problem they're having in Bangladesh right now. I started making gloves there so it's cheaper to make them because it's hard to get the equipment. And the equipment is different. The bats mm-hmm. are different. The ball is like a hard tennis ball. It's different. The glove is different. You can see it at the – they have them at the you know, at the sporting goods store in, in, you know, in Helsinki. So um, anyway, so it's kind of hard to – you'd have to get the equipment here to even start it. I do think at some point my dream is to – and I've talked to you know some Finns and some Americans about this. I think my dream would be someday post-pandemic, whatever else, be to figure out how to stage a like an actual exhibition in the states hmm. with two Finnish teams here in America you know um maybe they go on a tour you know but I think that I Americans will watch anything hmm. um and so you could get you know you can get 10,000 Americans to watch any game like especially if it's a game that's new and weird oh uh, they'll watch anything so I think that when I show people Pace Apollo they love it they're like oh my goodness how can I get more of this you know so yeah I, I don't think we're far off from that level but Amateur pace follow might be a little bit tougher because baseball culture in America is actually going down mm. um, for what it used to be. Okay. Yeah, it's turned into turn into a little bit of something. It's turned into something else here. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the wrong time for that. But we'd watch it. We'd watch it. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting story, though. Yeah, and I think like you know these stories with with your coach and then the pace follow is actually I think what what makes this podcast human the designer because like. People contain multitudes. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Uh, I was trying to comb my brain a little bit about the uh, personal side of, of, of Ron, but I think we've gotten quite a lot <laughs> already. Within within being in design for work, um, we were also asking uh, Meredith in the last uh, in the last episode, for you, how is, you know, what, what is the, the human side of, of design for you in working with people? Uh, in in working for well, in principle for people, uh, you do that a lot already. And uh, when I look at um, what you've been telling us, uh, it sounds like you really like to. I don't know. Are are you a people pleaser in any way? Uh, I I have a slight sense in that 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 you like to you know you put effort into doing things for others. And I don't know if you ever put yourself aside too much 
in some cases or not, or I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but I'm trying to. I follow follow you. I think it's an interesting question. Definitely the most probing question I've ever asked on a podcast. (laughs) So that's, that's really good. So shout out to you two for that. I think certainly there's a desire to, to please, but um, I'm from the East coast of America and I'm outside outside of New York. So, so I'm nice, but also like, I have a little bit of, there's still an edge. There's still that you don't lose that no matter where you go. Like you still don't lose it. So it's like, I think, well, I'm nice, but don't get carried away. (laughs) (laughs) Don't, don't, don't mistake for what you're going to see here because things could go South real bad, real fast. Kindness is not a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. for, For real, for real. So like, I think, I think it's less about people pleasing and more about, I know what it was like for my journey. Like, like if we're talking about human, human stuff here, I have no business being here. Like there are so many things that I feel like weren't just blockers, but frankly, I didn't know this. I tell young people all the time, like, well, how can I do what you did? I'm like, well, one, I didn't know this was a job you could have. There's no planet that I could have prepared for it. I did everything the wrong way. I didn't do it in the right order. Um, I was places that designers don't go to to get jobs designers don't get to build a career. Like I definitely did it on the sort of the outroads, you know? And so I think obviously tenacity and fervor and not sleeping certainly helped these things, but the acts of service piece, the trying to um, build things for our community goes back to what we just talked or talked about earlier, which is like, I see that basically what happens is I see there are things missing often. And I think someone should make that. And then I don't think about it again. And then they don't make it. And so then I'm like, all right, yeah. fine. I guess I'll do it. And that's my whole life. It's everything. Going back to high school. It's like, oh, there's no debate team. I guess I need to start one. Oh, I guess there's no team. I need to do this. Oh, this doesn't exist. I, Indianapolis Design Week. I started that. I don't run it anymore. Someone else does. They do a great job. It's a friend of mine. Wow. But when I started that, it wasn't because it didn't exist. It wasn't because I was like, you know what I want to do? I want to start a conference. I didn't. So, so much of that is, is wanting to amplify, wanting to showcase, wanting to highlight things that are happening where you are, or certainly you all know this, starting a really cool event in a place that folks don't normally think to go to, right? Other folks are doing cool things where they are. Why can't cool things happen where I live? Why can't I showcase the cool folks that I know who are doing awesome things where I'm at? And I've often, I've often lived in the sort of, you know, until I moved to Portland, which is sort of cool in its own way. A lot of the places that I've lived are not known for in America are not known for being places that are destinations in any way, yeah. but they're still really interesting people are doing interesting work. And wanting to showcase, amplify that, wanting to know them, frankly. And so a lot of, a lot of like what's driven me is really born out of that, of necessity, I think more than service. Okay. I I was thinking that concerning the, the event that you were mentioning, I think we did have the discussions at some point with Eve and, and with others. Should this event be only in Finland? Like, should it circulate around other areas as well? Should we go to the US because that's the thing to do and so on. But, uh, I think, uh, from my personal point of view, I don't know if Eve shares that, but like it, it was a challenge to get people to Finland, but it was also an opportunity to actually get people to Finland, like to see something yeah. from different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. So Ron, tell us a little bit about uh, Consequence Design as a concept, but also as a book. You mentioned that you're writing a book about that. So what is it actually and what will the book entail? Uh, good luck in knowing what the book's going to entail because I need to write it. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> No, I mean, it's coming together. It's just slow. So consequence design sort of is is really, we've been talking about it. We've been talking around it. I started noticing like so many of the conversations that I was seeing in at conferences or in the, on Twitter um, around different kinds of, of, of 
harm you know people talk about dark patterns a lot or something and i feel like all these sort of glib ways to talk about actual harm i found bothersome but the bigger piece was so consequences i really does talk about friction and giving names to the kinds of of friction that exist in like the spatial not just on digital spaces but in just like the real world and trying to like make sense of all of that. And so for designers really. And so so I've been using consequencedesign.org to talk about some of those things, to talk about things like liminality, talking about, uh, you know, like recommendations and, and sort of the harm and those kinds of things. And so what I'm really trying to do is it's really trying to, I don't think there's a world where you would envision a world where we have consequence designers, because I think they already exist. Mm. And so in some ways it's like, it's more of a defensive posture. I think most design is about like producing things. And this is like a defensive posture. This is like, this is like a, a, a you know, a, a walled off defense mm. of, of if, desi if design is positive, it's like, and I don't know that it is, but this is the flood wall to stop all the stuff that comes into the silliness. You have to define a nomenclature for the things that are harm so people can identify the problems. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we do a great job of that. I think we have a lot of names for these things yeah. or we, everybody has their own spin on what the problems are, but because they talk about things like ethics, like, okay, but like anybody who studied any kind of ethics can tell you that like the problem with ethics is that I don't know your ethical foundations or your framing. Mm -hmm. So how can I know that we're like, you're ethical, like ethical compared to what? Yeah. So my, my thought, my hope, my idea is to use consequence design as a, as a framework to better help non-technical, non-design people better understand where, how to identify harm in the, the, the tools that they're using and to help, maybe help better help them to, to protect themselves against it while also helping people who are like us who do this work every day be more thoughtful about this, the, the, the harm that's baked into what we're building. In some cases, very much unwittingly. It sounds like that you focused on also seeing who are the people maybe making these decisions yep. about harmful uh, well, harmful things that come out there, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we translate all of this stuff to be more understandable for for those people or for the general public? Because you know, if if we look at people making the business decisions or the 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 chief level of of companies, they might not be talking the tech talk that everybody may be familiar or not familiar with. Like you mentioned, dark patterns, and then it's like more of a of a buzzword than. Than an actual understanding. So consequence design indeed sounds a lot more understandable, like what it's about exactly. Yeah, I, th I think that what I envision is a world where you could. I mean, this my dream would be. This is the dream would be you'd almost have entire like sort of these like master teams that have the ability to like shut stuff down. You like in a, in an or in a, on a product or an organization. It's like oh like you know we're doing the we're doing this harmful UI pattern. Consequence designers could be like uh uh you know we're like a team of people who are like uh uh. You know, and I'm not thinking of those only as designers. I'm thinking of like product folks, like engineers, folks who are trained in like understanding and spotting this stuff. Other industries have these things. Actually, what made me get here, whatever your feelings about like energy production <laughs> exists and in um, offshore uh, drilling, there are these integrity engineers whose job it is to like asset, well, to prevent ideally, but to assess and mitigate spills. Like it's their job. Their job is like, yeah. These things topple over sometimes. Sometimes stuff gets out. How do we ensure that it doesn't kill all the fish? <laughs> just like, I think that's a cool job to have exist because there are, you, can, you recognize that there are harms to the things you're doing. These harms exist. Obviously, I'm sure it's you know, buttressed in a lot of legalese and stuff, but I think the idea, we don't have any of this. Like we have none of that, right? You, you have these harm and risk teams and you know, trust and safety, but the framing of those teams to me doesn't really drill into like policy. 
because that's a legal that's a legal department, right? They're separate areas. You have like trust and safety. You've got these these uh these policy teams. You've got engineers and designers, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like you need to find a way to consolidate that into its own craft, into its own thinking, into its own like, and it brings different people to our field who like are not currently working in it because. Or if they are working at it, they're doing different things. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I guess things like accessibility and um, the the general data protection regulation in, in in Europe, those are policy things that are happening right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. And uh, and your book will be encompassing a lot more about well things that are beyond those <laughs> as well. Right, right. Everyday things, everyday example. The example I always give is going to a train kiosk and trying to use the you know they trying to use the train kiosk UI and struggling. with and watch it you watch people do that I, I love watching people do it like self-checkout lanes at supermarkets watching folks just not we foisted this onto them we didn't give them a choice and you say well go buy a ticket from the person at the counter often there's not a counter you just have to use the ui mm-hmm. what yeah. that's a solution that's how we're, we're gonna that's our world now okay maybe we need an on-ramp to that maybe we need to if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna force this on everybody maybe we need to have some ground rules for how we're gonna play this game yeah yeah that reminds me that reminds me of my uh my grandmother when she was still alive um they were you know they were changing uh banking policies that they were cutting down all of the offices because you know things were going digital and she was one of the one of the few users let's say that would go to the bank in person and get the money from there in person. Then all of a sudden, she couldn't do that. There were only these these machines that she she would have to use, and she never used those things. So it reminds me of that kind of situation that that you just kind of cut a certain part of the experience because, well, hey, uh, you're just an edge case, like you mentioned before. <laughs> right, right. And close your experience. Like the, the 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 thing I'll say too is we don't like we don't that should be a job, mm-hmm. folks. Not just offboarding. Close your experience. How do you create a humane I used your thing. I no longer need the thing. Thank you for letting me use the thing. Just because I went to the supermarket one time doesn't mean I need to go to your supermarket every time mm-hmm. the rest of my life and get emails from you till I die. <laughs> but we, we, built, we built systems this way. We built, we built subscriptions that are like, I'm going to keep charging you even if you don't use the thing. I'm going to charge you until you're dead. Yeah. That's, that's not okay. But that's just Tuesday for us. That's just how, that's the world we live in now. I think we need to figure that out. Yeah. You were talking a lot about... Uh the language of things and how we frame them. But I was wondering if, in your point of view, wordings like uh, dark patterns, for example, do they have negative connotations uh, or are they uh, white culture vocabulary? Yeah, uh, I don't use, I don't actually like using the term dark patterns. I've started using it again only because folks mm-hmm. understand what I'm saying when I say it. But then I immediately tell them, like, don't use the word dark because dark, you saying dark patterns implies that dark is bad. And I didn't even come up with that. Like somebody, I heard, I saw a talk where someone said that once and I was like, oh, that's a good point. I'm going to stop saying dark patterns. So I did. But what I found actually part of, again, how I got this consequence design piece is that just that one term that when I stopped using it and you start using other things, deceptive patterns, hostile design, blah, blah, blah. People don't know what you're talking about. You have to like recenter the conversation again. And so I was like, I don't need a cutesy term for, for, for fraud. It's fraud. Okay. Like we already have words for this. Yeah. We already have words for this stuff. We don't need to invent new words for these things. Cause the neologism, the words already exist. What you're doing is fraudulent. It's a crime and you should be, you should stop doing it now. You know, but like, well, we won't say that. We'll just say, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's a little toxic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, euphemisms, most of the time, they, they just like derail from the, the actual content. They don't um, 
allow us to do the conversation in an honest way. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Circling back to to the book a little bit, uh, have you thought of a deadline? I would hope that it'll be out. Um, we've been talking about this um, publisher and so forth. My, my hope that it would be out by beginning of next year. It's possibly being at the end of this year, but I would imagine beginning of next year um, is this the, yeah. the timeframe right now. Cool. Welcome back. Let's move to our next part where we present interesting things like articles and stories that are happening in our community. And today, Eve, you have something for us. Yes, that's right. Um, concerning uh, Ron's background a little bit, uh, I, I was looking into what, what could uh, be attuned to, to that. And um, also seeing as we, we are in Finland uh, recording this, at least Angelos and I are, open innovation came up as, as one of the ideas uh, to talk about. It's a concept which has been uh, presented a few times also in, in like conferences here uh, in, in Helsinki, but also in the Netherlands uh, where, where I did my study. So that's why I'm also a bit more uh, into that kind of thing of knowing about how that works. One of the aspects in that is that um, government, industry, academia, and in some cases also community work together to do projects, to uh, think about new innovations. You know, some examples of that are, are you know, universities working together with industry um, and government to, to set up programs in the Netherlands for elderly uh, to be more comfortable, for example. Uh, but one of the ideas about um, open innovation as well is to promote this kind of mindset toward innovation without the secrecy and silo mentality. Uh, and so sharing that space between these big entities, um, also the idea is to drive change easier, more transparent, uh, that kind of thing. So we were wondering um, in, in that space, you've been working a little bit in that uh, last couple of years and how have you been experiencing that? You know, uh, what's your vision on it? Uh, what kind of problems have you encountered? Take it away. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I have multifaceted thoughts on that that topic. So I work at 18F. It's the you know, Digital Innovation Office inside the U.S. government. I am not speaking on my official capacity today. This is for anybody in the press office who ends up listening to this by accident. I hope you don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that being said, I'm not going to talk about anything related to my actual day-to-day -day work just because that's a whole process. But I will say this, but even before this, though, I've done a lot of sort of civic, you know, non-governmental stuff. And I worked in local government, too, and, and and, you know, state government before this. So I have seen it. Um, I will say that broadly about working in the open, I think it's only a good thing because many folks have misconceptions about what government does or does not do and what is happening behind the scenes of government. Yeah. Um, and once you kind of get behind the scenes of government broadly, you start to understand that like, you're like, oh, this is like anywhere, you know, it's like a mess and slow sometimes, but it's like anywhere else. You know, there are problems, there are good things, there are bad things, sometimes things work. And also the other thing I think you learn, again, broadly in government is that even if you don't agree with somebody, for the most part, most people are there because they care. Most people are trying to do their best. Most people want to get you know, part of their communities and take the work very seriously. I think this idea of public-private sort of governmental partnership kinds of things, I guess the thing I want to push back on is the word innovation. Um, there's this drive, especially now among technocrats, mm. to think we can, we, can, we can innovate ourselves out of a box. We just digitize everything. It's going to solve all the problems. 
that all the gra- the crust and all of the graft and all of the problems that existed before are going to get solved somehow. And I think we all know that's not true. But I think that creating meta structures, creating these sort of quasi-governmental partnerships that presuppose that 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 we're going to solve something. Who's missing from that conversation, right? Who's not part of that conversation? When you talk about like public-private government, are people involved? Who are the people that are involved? Who are the people that are going to benefit or be harmed by the innovation of these things? And so I tend to be, as a person, personally, very skeptical of innovation that is not participatory. You know, I know there's been a lot of different things, especially, you know, in thinking in other parts of the country, other parts of even the U.S., talking about participatory design, you know, of, yeah. of bringing everyone to the table yeah. by bringing nonprofit. Nonprofits do so much work, you know, NGOs too, but like, in, in, especially here in America, nonprofits do so much work to try to fill the gaps of areas where government doesn't go or isn't able to fill or isn't able to successfully achieve. Um, so especially here, there's a lot of need to have folks who are doing the work at the table and not just at the table, but calling the shots, frankly. Like, I think the last thing we need is somebody in a suit, a technocrat or a business person making decisions yeah. for everyday people that they're not touched to. And I think the other thing is that as much as we can localize, one of the things that really helped me see this as a possibility is, I don't know if you all remember the old Helsinki Design Lab via Citra. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a site I saw online. They closed a bunch of years ago, but they had a bunch of stuff online. I found it late. Like I found that they shut down, but it blew my mind that this could come out of government. Yeah. The fact that you could have people sitting around thinking about like, you know, design and innovation in this way and how you create, how you deal with intractable problems and, and solving them. And they were doing this kind of thinking yeah. um, to me was fascinating. And it led me down the path that I'm on now. Like I think literally they, so much of what I just read from the stuff that they did, reading the books they put out um, was really, really fascinating, really, really helpful for me um, in terms of helping me sort of shape my own worldview about what was possible when institutional stakeholders coalesce resources to allow people who are already doing the work to do it well and to do it better. Mm. That That's a, uh, that, that's a, you know, a 20 year old answer to your, your one year old question. But I think open, open is good. You know, open data, good. Open, you know, open government, good. Um, the more we can pull back, you know, we can pull back the lens from stuff and allow folks to dispense from the notion of conspiracy theories and so forth. They're still going to have them, but I think that the more we can be transparent and document and show and tell is good. Um, but I think beyond just showing and telling, we need to drag more people into the conversations. We need to expand the view and the lens of who is part of these decision-making processes and not shutting people out or closing them out. Yeah. One parenthesis here, uh, when we were talking about... Uh... Helsinki and Citra uh, and Helsinki Design Lab, uh, for the listeners who might not know what that is, is um, it was an initiative started by by Citra and uh, it was basically an initiative to advance strategic design and it was concerned basically with re-examining and rethinking and redesigning the systems that we have inherited from the past. And this was actually uh, active from 2009 to 2013. Uh, and now Citra, um, I guess it's, it's still a think tank and a Finnish innovation fund, basically, but uh, they're uh, focusing nowadays way much more on environmental issues and things like that. Yeah, I, I guess this is one of also one of these questions that um, people are really trying to see the difference between collaborative uh, work versus competitive work, uh, especially in the in the business scene. Like it used to be that bringing competition is really good uh, to 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 boost you know new ideas coming out or better ideas or improving things. Uh, but we're also seeing that doing things together can really 
give a similar value, maybe even better. Uh, so that's also one of the ideas behind the open innovation, that it's challenging the more traditional sense of we need more competition in, in the in the landscape so that we have people trying to bring new ideas so that they can push the others out of the <laughs> out of the rim, let's say. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. I think per usual, you all, I think in Europe, across the board in Europe, you're seeing better sort of cooler iterations of this kind of thing, because I think that that, uh, that there is less antipathy for government, you know, generalizing here mm -hmm. compared to the US. And I think that that makes these kinds of things easier to, to, to fund often and easier to to ideate because there isn't this immediate immediate response that's like nah we shouldn't do that because it might help someone i don't like you may get to the same place but it doesn't start there whereas here we start there and that makes it harder to even do that hey before we close i would like to ask you ron if you have something that you would like to plug and uh, where can people find you where can they find your work if you want to be found yeah you can find me online ronbronson.com um, I'm on Twitter. I shouldn't be, but I am, uh, <laughs> like, you know, it's the place I can't quit, but I'm working on it. Um, and obviously if you do want to read about, so see the scribbles of consequence design stuff until we get some more things out, you can go to consequencedesign.org. Now that I'm putting it out there, I'll add more stuff, but, um, yeah, those three places are pretty much where I'm hanging out these days. Mm -hmm. Cool. What about you, Eve? I, I was just wondering from, from your side, Ron, if there's any, you know, besides those, those different places, if there's any communities that you admire for their work and, and, and which go hand in hand with the, the passion that you feel towards seeing the world improve? I think there are a lot of individual efforts that are happening. Folks, definitely, there are a lot of people, too many for me to even mention because I'll forget someone. We should never assume that people aren't thinking about the subjects we don't know about it. And if I've let the fact about Twitter in a negative way, but I say, if I've learned anything, it's like, oh, whenever you're like, why is anyone talking about this? Of course you're talking about it. You just don't know them. You're not in that sector. You're not in that space. You're not in that field. You're not inventing anything new. Hush. I think that, that if anything, I've learned that. And so I don't know about organizations per se, but I think there are definitely people more than ever who are out sounding the alarm for the kinds of, you know, who are focused on the things we're all talking about, like, you know, holistic design and, 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 and seeing people as people and, and involving communities and, and, you know, collaboration and so forth. So I think there's a lot of cool energy going on right now. And I'll be interested to see post-pandemic what that looks like and how that transforms, if it does, the work that we all do. Because I think there's something coming. I just don't know what it's going to look like. I, I did have two more things. One, uh, I was wondering, what was the name? I mean, you said that the, the tennis courts were named after him. But what's the full name of those tennis courts nowadays? Oh, they're the Donald J. J. Van Blake tennis courts. <laughs> yeah, those ones. Yeah. So just yeah. in case people are interested to, you know, Google Maps and... and right. You can't can. You can see where they're at. Yep. They look really nice too. They renovated them since I played on them as a high school kid. They, they've improved them. So they're really, really nice. And he got, this, got the coach on them. They're awesome. Cool. Awesome. And then the second question was more of a, um, from your human side, let's say, one of the things I was interested in with, with Meredith as well is, you know, in your current setting, what is your kind of, you're doing this book, Consequence Design. What are your bigger plans in your own development uh, where you see yourself going towards and, and what kind of advice would you like to give uh, people out there with the values that you carry? You said, what's my plug? My plug is somebody needs to find a way for me to move to Finland. That's what someone needs to do. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the plug. So if you're listening and you want to figure that out, we should figure that out. That's, that's the goal. But uh, like, for real, not even a joke. But as far as um, the advice or the, the direction, I've been sort of in a very interesting spot the last couple of years as a manager, leading a team and, and doing, frankly, I think more design ops work 
than anything. Um, I've done other things, but I feel like honestly, if you say, well, what have you really been up to? I've been doing a lot of that, like change management, change strategy kind of stuff more than anything. So I don't know how you turn it into a job, but that's, that's kind of, I'm trying to figure out sort of how I take these combined interests and, and build it, build that into a practice of sorts. If I like we're lead government, I'll be intrigued to see that. So I'm still figuring that out. As far as advice, I see that the advice I always give to people about shaping their own paths, whether they're starting out, whether they're in the middle, whether they've been doing it a while and they're trying to reboot or figure it out is, is that there's not one way to do this. You don't need to feel encumbered by whatever you feel are your perceived um, things that maybe make you feel like you're, you're, you're not able to do this. You're not able to do whatever it is you think you're trying to do. Yeah. doesn't mean it's going to be easy and it doesn't mean it's going to work necessarily how you intend. But what I always did when I was broke, I always said, well, I've got more time than other people do. So I'm going to use the time that I have to try to like just spread the field and maybe that'll, that'll get me to where I want to be. And so just trying to figure out a, getting yourself stabilized, but then also figuring out how you, I think, collaborative milestones rather than your own milestones. So it's not always, like I said, about being a co-founder of 12 things on LinkedIn. It's like, actually, it's, I think it's better when you're part of things, when you find out what are other folks doing in my community? How can I be part of the thing? Rather than always trying to start the thing and then getting people to join your thing like a cult, go to find out what, how you can help other folks in your community who are doing a thing. Because often I found folks are really excited to to have the support because they're just like you. They're probably just like, oh my goodness, this is a lot. Thank goodness someone wants to, you know, carry this burden or whatever. Um, so figure out where you can you can chip in and help. And don't shape your path based on somebody else's. Your door is the door you walk through. It's not theirs. Um, often you will find that people you admire and look up to, the door they went through is not a door that's open for them. They had to they had to build the door. They had put the door up yeah. and then they had to walk through it. And then when they did that, the person behind them who was running the house was like, put a door there and blew the door up so that nobody else walked through it. So do not feel like you need to, you need to ascribe to someone else's pathway. You know, if you walk on, a, you know, the old UI UX drawing, if you walk on the grass long enough, the path creates. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so that's how I see it. That's how I see it. Thank you. Awesome. Wrapping up, I would like to say that um, people should uh, definitely check us out on uh, jointfrontiers.com. Uh, we're having articles there that are uh, published by contributors and people from the community. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you should also listen to the previous episodes as well, which you might find interest in. And uh, one other thing that I would like to, to promote is uh, if you go to documenting.com, design, you will uh, find a lot of resources that are uh, centered around uh, design ops. Uh, in the future, there's going to be expanded to be more holistic in a way, so more than design ops and less than design ops. And uh, you will also find a link to a survey that is the survey of the state of design ops for 2021. So if you're listening to this podcast, please check it out. And if you are working with design operations or if you have people in your company working with that, or if you know people working with that, then please uh, share the link or take the survey and help us figure out where this field is going. And here I would like to really thank you, Ron. It has been a very, very interesting discussion, getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, understanding what Pesa Palo is <laughs> and, um, uh, and yeah, like uh, learning a bit about consequence design, which I thought was just really, really, really interesting. And I'm, I'm waiting, looking forward for your, um, for your book, no pressure, but. Uh, oh yeah. Don't worry. You're going to get a review copy. Don't you worry. You're going to look forward to it. When you, when you get that review copy, you have to read and tear it apart. So you just stay tuned for that. Looking forward. Yeah. Can't promise any, uh, 
proof, proof. No, I don't need that. All I need you to be like, this is terrible. Why did you, this whole chapter is trash. Like, why did you, this is awful. I don't like any of this. <laughs> like, that's what I need. I need that. I need that. Also, we're going up, we're going to, we're going to a Pace Apollo game when I come to Finland. So just, just, All right, yes. so just both of you know, that's on your itinerary. I'm adding it to your itinerary. Agreed. And if we can go in Helsinki, there's a team, Espo too, but. That's a deal. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna be my, my, my first Pesa Palo in Finland. I have been living in uh, in Finland for like uh, 14 years, <laughs> and my first uh, Pesa Palo game is gonna be with uh, an American coming to Finland to to, to show me it. So <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. Yeah. I'm gonna explain it to you. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be so good. It's gonna be so good. I'm so... Trust me, there, there are actual Finns I've taught this game yeah. to, so it's really great. Like it's really, yeah. it's totally a thing. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> cool. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, thank you, Ron. And uh, see you next time. Yes. Thanks, Ron, Thanks. For, for opening up and giving us a, a picture of your life and your inspirations and values and everything around that. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, everyone.